Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the philosophical and practical aspects of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have news stories, including August shows positive signs in car sales, ANCAP gives five stars to three electric vehicles, Skoda goes for a seven-year warranty, and a call for people who have experience in riding in an electric car who might fill out a survey for a university research project. And in our feature stories, we road test the Nissan Patrol and the BMW iX xDrive 40. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. This program was first broadcast on the 10th of September 2022. And let's get it started. First, the news. In positive news, for the month of August, vehicle sales numbers are up 17.3% compared to the same month in 2021. In terms of year-to-date figures, 2022 is still behind by 2.1% compared to last year. There have been a number of surges for various vehicles that suggest that when a company gets a shipment of a popular model, they are soon snapped up by the market. For the last few months, Tesla sales, that is vehicles that have been delivered to customers, have been negligible. In August, they reported sales of 3,397 vehicles. If this is accurate, that made them the seventh best-selling brand for the month. Other electric vehicles have also shown big monthly increases in relative terms. Hyundai's Ioniq 5 is up 24-fold on last year, and the Nissan Leaf is up nearly fourfold. In the month, EV sales were 4.4% of the total market. This is the highest market share for pure electric vehicles ever recorded in a single month in Australia. Year-to-date EV sales are 2% of the total market, hybrids are 7.6% and plug-in hybrid vehicles are 0.6%. Some other non-electric vehicles have also seen a surge. Toyota's recently released Land Cruiser 300 saw a rise of nearly fourfold compared to the same period last year. ANCAP, the independent crash testing organisation, has announced that three electric vehicles have achieved five-star ratings, the Tesla Model Y, the Kia Nero and the Genesis GV60. The Tesla Model Y impressed across all four pillars of ANCAP's assessment, achieving an all-time record score of 98% in the safety assist pillar and the highest adult occupant protection score to date against the latest rating criteria. The Tesla Y model demonstrated high levels of performance for its ability to avoid a crash with another vehicle, pedestrian or cyclist, and maximum points were awarded across the majority of collision avoidance test scenarios. The Model Y is also fitted as standard with a direct driver monitoring system, DMS, which uses onboard camera-based monitoring to detect a distracted driver and automatically enhances the sensitivity of the forward collision warning system to be more reactive if distraction or impaired driving characteristics are detected. From 2023, direct DMS functionality will be assessed as part of ANCAP's rating criteria. 
a step forward from the assessment of indirect monitoring systems that form part of the current rating criteria. Solid scores were recorded in the testing of the Genesis GV60, with full points scored for protection of the front seat passengers in the frontal offset test, the driver in the side impact test, and for both child occupants in frontal and side impact crash scenarios. While still within the five-star threshold, the GV60's overall vulnerable road user protection score was, however, somewhat lower than its segment counterparts at 63%. The front bumper of the GV60 provided good protection to a struck pedestrian's lower legs. However, protection of the pelvis was predominantly poor, with just 0.45 points out of a possible six in this area of testing. All battery electric, hybrid and plug-in hybrid variants of the new Kia Nero offer five-star safety performance. For the Nero, among other criteria, maximum points were scored in the upper and lower leg impact tests for pedestrians, and for the Nero's ability to actively avoid or mitigate a crash with another vehicle in intersection turning scenarios. The design of the front of the Kia Nero also showed to be a relative benign impact partner, presenting a low risk to occupants of an oncoming struck vehicle in the frontal offset crash test. The Volkswagen brand is dipping its toe into the seven-year warranty feature on the market with their Skoda brand. Volkswagen says that Skoda was the first European brand to offer five-year warranties in 2017, and now they are going a step further. Skoda is a company founded in what is now called the Czech Republic. In November 1989, when the Velvet Revolution ended communist rule in the country, the company was in debt and producing low-quality, outdated cars. In December 1990, the company was privatised when it was bought under the Volkswagen Group banner. Worldwide, in 1994, they produced just 172,000 vehicles. By 2014, they had passed the 1 million mark and reached 1.25 million in 2018. Their sales have dropped a little, especially on the first COVID years. The director of Skoda Australia, Michael Ermer, said, We remain intent on becoming a leading brand in the sphere of lifetime ownership experience in Australia. Overdrive has received an approach from Emeritus Professor Mike Regan from the University of New South Wales in regard to a project he and his colleagues are doing concerning electric vehicles. The project is a large-scale survey, 500-plus respondents, looking at potential passenger motion sickness in battery electric vehicles. They need to send the survey to people who have experience as a passenger in an electric vehicle. They're not interested in hybrids, just full electric vehicles. The project has received approval from the UNSW Ethics Committee. Our experience has been that electric vehicles that are used on maximum regeneration can be uncomfortable to passengers, especially if the driver is using this for the first time. Maximum regeneration means that if you take your foot off the accelerator, the car slows down markedly as though you were using the brake to some degree. And if you get back on the power, an electric vehicle can accelerate very quickly. This leads to an on-again, off-again effect that the driver knows when it's going to happen, but the passenger does not. Anyone who has experience of being a passenger in an electric vehicle and would like to participate in the survey can send an email to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au 
with contact details. And that has been the news. In the news, we noted that Nissan had brought out a new model of their Nissan Patrol, an upper large SUV, and it was a makeover. It really was just a few cosmetic changes to it. Yet it still remains and has been doing very well so far this year, a major player in a very limited market for the, what I would call, lower-priced large SUVs. There's really only it and the Toyota Land Cruiser. How does it feel? Where does it fit? Let's talk to our road tester, Evan Jones, who had a bit of a go of it, uh, particularly in the urban situation. Good day, Evan. Good day, mate. How are you? When you got in it the first time, what was your immediate response? Oh, this is all very nice, very luxurious. Jesus, thing's big. <laughs> all in the one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to climb into it. Yep. When you sat in it, then, uh, the human-machine interface, how did you find that? Getting getting used to uh, what is a new car. Refreshingly old school. <laughs> Lots of tactile analog buttons and switches and dials. Very uh, refreshing, very reassuring. But also, no, I also noticed lots of electronic stuff if you wanted it, but it was set up in such a way as if you wanted it. So if you didn't use it, it wasn't a problem like it is with some vehicles. So it was set up for someone around our demographic, I reckon, given all the buttons and, and knobs and dials. I think it was excellent. It's almost an interim car in that sort of human-machine interface, isn't it? If you were going from an old car to an absolute modern new bells and whistles car it would be almost overwhelming this one comes in there i think it only had about an eight inch infotainment screen yet you could still see the map quite well yep no problem reading it no problem reading any of the instruments just a, a like a 30 second scan of where all the buttons were and what the button said then they're all well labeled which made it easy to get used to and so you could see the, the opportunity was there if you wanted to go into more depth, if you wanted more technical stuff, it was there, but it wasn't in your way if you didn't need it. On that respect, it's a big tick for me. I like the old school buttons. And the aesthetics of the interior with the panelling and... Oh, all, yeah, all the, the faux wood grain. Um, <laughs> well, I think it was very elegant if, if, if in an American style, actually, if you like that type of thing, which for me it was nice. It was a nice light brown, fawny colour. The ambience inside actually all matched the the wood grain panelling on the the dash. No, very luxurious. Yeah, uh, actually a little Range Rover-esque, if you want to put it that way. Get the impression it was inspired by the Range Rover, an early Range Rover. And the panelling sort of fitted in. It wasn't sort of like a veneer to cover up poor design. It was one that fitted the pattern. There wasn't a huge amount of it, but there was enough to emphasise that you're in a luxury vehicle. It gave it an overall good luxury balance. You get into some cars and you can tell, oh, they're throwing this in and it's overbearing or it's an afterthought. This time, no, I think it was there with purpose, almost relaxing in a way with with the wood panelling. It was almost relaxing. It was very nice. You sat up high. How did you find manoeuvring in tight spaces in terms of what the vehicle tells you and helps you do it? You know you're in a large vehicle when you're looking down on a Range Rover, which we did on the way at a set of traffic lights. I was amazed. I don't often get to look down on a, that's literally not figuratively, a Range Rover driver, but in this case I did. It's amazing. 
I wondered if you did figuratively feel like you were looking down on. No, that's a that's another question as well. You do sit up on the seat, don't you? I I got into it after sitting in something like a, a WRX, which of course is low and a sedan, the sedan version of it. But this one, you sit a little bit like a school child who's been told to sit up straight, almost artificially, but certainly to sit up straight. Is that a reflection you had? Yes, you did definitely do sit up straight, but I think that's appropriate for the type of vehicle it is. A six-litre petrol V8 with 298 kilowatts and 560 newton metres of torque, a seven-speed automatic transmission. How did you find the power of it, the oomph of the vehicle? Did it surprise you at any stage? On the expressway, she was lathing along at 1,100 revs, so it wasn't exactly working hard, which is a nice thing. It means the engine will probably last forever. Once or twice, I did have to give it a bit of sting to get through the lights to keep up, and it got up and launched. Kicked down two or three gears, no problem at all, and away it went. So she's big, but she's powerful as well. And makes all the right noises, six litre of air, what could go wrong? It sounded lovely, and it really gets up and goes if you need it to. And then it just goes back to being its quiet self. It's really in some ways a Grand Tourer. How would you find it as such, given that some Australian roads are particularly good and some perhaps not quite as good? Where would you place it in terms of doing a nice long trip in it? On expressways and A roads, yeah, it should be lovely. It's very comfortable. I personally find the suspension a little bit soft on lesser roads, a bit wallowy. Now, that might be a personal thing, but it would take a little bit more getting used to on on, um, faster, bumpier roads. You have to keep your eye on it because it does wallow a bit. I'm sure that's because of what it is. Again, it's it's a big off-roader at the end of the day, and I think that soft suspension will come into its own when you're off-road going over bumps and stuff at about 7 or 8K. But on the expressway, yeah, that, yeah, that, that for me is a bit of a downfall. It's a compromise, but unfortunately it's a bit of a downfall for the purest. Evan, always lovely to talk to you, and I appreciate your honest, informed opinion. Thanks very much. Thanks, David. This is Overdrive across Australia. When you test drive the Nissan Patrol, an upper large SUV, it's easy to settle into a comfortable touring mode. It has a lot of comfort features. For example, the top model has wood panelling, for heaven's sake. A big V8 means that you can feel a bit GT, as in grand touring, overtaking slower vehicles and maintaining the speed limit, no matter how steep the hill is. But does it still have the ability to go off-road onto the rugged roads? Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au is part of the off-road fraternity and can report on whether that is still considered part of the Nissan's DNA. Is it only a lounge suite or can it still go mountain climbing? Rob, is there still some credibility out there in that part of the market for the patrol? Look, absolutely. I think the patrol, it, it maintains its core four-wheel drive DNA. I mean, it is every bit as capable as a standard Land Cruiser in its standard format. You know, it has that four-wheel drive capability. But I think the issue more is that a lot of the buyers don't actually use the capability for four-wheel drive. They buy it for other reasons. There's also a, a question of price, really, isn't there? And that is, it's outstanding value. I mean, 
Top of the line patrol, I think, is around about $95,000 plus all the usual costs. And when you compare that to the top of the line Land Cruiser, I think the Sahara ZX, which is now, don't quote me on the figures, $125,000, $130,000 plus, that's a big difference in terms of price and not a lot of difference in terms of bling or interior comfort and safety features and almost no difference in terms of four-wheel drive capability. They still have that credibility with the fraternity off-road? Yeah, look, it absolutely does. I mean, Land Cruiser versus Patrol is a bit like Ford versus Holden. Neither the twain shall meet and everyone has their own favourites. There are more base models, both of the Patrol and the Land Cruiser. Are they perhaps more towards the owner who is more focused on off-roads? Uh, look, both, and, and I think this is the key, other than the GR Sport Land Cruiser. All of the Land Cruisers have the same four-wheel drive capability. Mm. And so if you're going to add a lot of extra stuff to it, you're obviously better off going for something that's a little bit less in price and then you can spend your dollars on that. It's nothing for people, to, as you said, to walk in and drop 20 or 30 grand on a vehicle and have what they want on it. Mm. With the Patrol, the capability is still there and, and there are aftermarket accessories for the Patrol. I'm just not sure how many people actually do it. You don't see an awful lot of them too far off the beaten track, so to speak. Winches, bull bars, suspension kits, you know, air compressors, roof racks, all that type of stuff. You know, they're, they're there, they're available, not to the same extent as what there is for a Land Cruiser, especially the 200 series. But I just, I just think it's a slightly different demographic these days that is buying the Patrol as to buying the Land Cruiser which is different to what it would have been 10 years ago. Ah. 10 years ago, they were really hardcore four-wheel drivers that would buy either and you know, add what they wanted to do. And a, a lot of people that, that are Patrol fans will buy an older one and do it up. And there's a lot of anchors of people like that as well. They'll buy an 80 series or a 100 series and they'll add to it what they want because it's more hardcore for them. It's more what they really want. The Patrol only has a petrol. Is that go against it? I think what it does, it tells us more about where the vehicle was designed for. I mean, we get the Patrol in Australia, I think, almost as an afterthought. It was really designed for the American market and the United Arab Emirates, where the price of petrol until the last six months or so really, really wasn't a problem. And of course, what this does is broaden the market for these vehicles. You still had the devout who perhaps might go back to the uh, earlier days almost uh, as that tradition is one that of which they believe in, but you are covering other people as well when you add such luxury to the vehicle. Yeah, they really have morphed into a luxury family transport as opposed to a four-wheel drive work vehicle, which is where both of their origins came from. Hmm. And that's where the market is going and that's where the buyers are and the number of buyers that want Traditional four-wheel drives are becoming a little bit less and less, and that's why you have vehicles like, and I'm thankful that they exist, like the 70 Series Land Cruiser, like the new Ineos Grenadier, and even you know the new Land Rover Defender, which has gone completely away from its original roots, but it still maintains awesome off-road capability. I'm just glad those vehicles still exist for those of us that really do want to get away from people and you know find that peace and solitude out in the bush. The Defender, what's that, 89,000 plus, plus on roads, plus other models part of it, that sounded a lot at the time compared to what they were, but maybe the price is one indication of where this whole market has shifted. I did a comparison recently between a top-end spec Land Cruiser and an equivalent spec Defender, 
And this shocked me. The Defender actually came in cheaper. It's on the site there, so people want to go read it, but it, it was an interesting comparison, that's for sure. Well, perhaps we're making the point in Australia where $90,000 for this sort of capability and luxury is not such a bad thing as we might have first expected. Rob, always lovely to talk to you. I learned a lot. Thank you very much for your time. David, you have a great day. Thank you. And that's Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au who adventures out into the great outdoors and reflects back not just on climbing the side of mountains up and down rocks, but on the character and the personalities of both the cars and, in fact, the people. This is Overdrive across Australia. Two students from Macquarie University studying for their communication degree have volunteered to do an intern program with 99.3 Community Radio. Part of this will be supporting a project we have started with Willoughby Council to engage with the community about major council activities. The next big event coming up is the Emerge Festival, starting with the Spring Street Fair on the 3rd of September and then involving over 70 events through to the 9th of October. One of the students, Florence Fuller, who has a passion for radio, is looking forward to getting some practical experience. I've done public speaking and stuff like that, but in my degree, it's mostly theory. I did a radio course last semester. We made Vox Pops and edited an interview and did sort of a radio feature, which was really interesting. You will hear reports and information from Florence and Rebecca Park in the weeks ahead. You're listening to Overdrive. Last week, we covered in the news a story about how the BMW electric vehicle, the iX xDrive 40, was somewhat judgmental in its voice actuation system when I got so frustrated with the system and I dropped a profanity. It told me fundamentally to please don't speak to me like that. But we did test the whole car with our good friend Alan Zervis from GayCarboys.com. G'day, Alan. David, how are you? Well, I'm trying to recover from this personal affront that I had when uh, this voice actuation system responded to me. I mean, I was tempted to say, well, because I had got frustrated with the system and to a strong extent that I eventually swore. And I felt like going back to them and saying, well, get your bloody act together. David, there's only one voice actuation system that I found really good, which was the one that was the Google one that was in Volvo. This one I worked, but it seemed to be quite temperamental. Do you like the voice actuation? What sort of things could I call up and get it to do via the voice? Basically, it will do anything you want to do in the car. I tried with lots of different things. So, for example, turning the air conditioning up and changing radio stations, that sort of thing. I even tried putting the windows up. It also did the smart roof, David. So it had that smart glass in the roof that went opaque, either by pressing a button or using voice command. And it turned on, or I guess turned off, the massaging seats. I love that. Well, you'll keep in mind that it did ask you then to continue on using the screen. So it only brought it up on that central screen. The rest you had to do yourself, choose the kind of massage and so forth. Uh, And you could also get that by pressing the massage button on the seat. That's still good that voice actuation gets you to, there's nothing worse 
than trying to go through a, a menu to find something that you're not sure where it is when when everything is described by a word that you don't fully understand what it means. Well, exactly. But I mean, keep in mind, David, this car had uh, what eleven or twelve thousand dollars worth of extras. You know, for that price, I'd want it to understand what I mean. What what price was it? It was one hundred and forty one thousand nine hundred base price. One hundred and fifty three thousand nine hundred is tested. Let's talk about the EV, a dual motor. Dual motor, David, the battery's got an eight-year, 160,000-kilometre warranty. It also charges reasonably fast. When I say reasonably fast, Ionic 5 and EV6 charge faster. This will go up to 150. The consumption, David, is about 22.5 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres, and acceleration 6.1 seconds to 100, which I thought was impressive. How big a range did it get? Around 420, but I never managed with 100% to get it above 400. What sort of power did it put out? 240 kilowatts and 630 newton metres, which I thought was pretty good. Bear bear in mind the car does weigh almost two and a half tonnes. Power is good. Interior, you think, is uh, very good. Uh, I thought it was absolutely beautiful. It was simple, and that's what I liked. The problem I've got with BMW interiors generally is they're quite complex. So there's a lot of lines and zones and God knows what. This was simple. It was relaxing. It was elegant. And it felt properly luxurious, even though it's not a super luxurious model. You'd like the interior, but the exterior perhaps not as much? There's something awkward about the exterior. The the front's very slabby, the rear's very slabby, and there's that awkward little kink up at the back window. I I mean, it's not ugly, it's just not handsome. The back of it looked cumbersome rather than elegant, and the front, it was very just slab-like, as you described, but the grille was sort of a fake grille because it's an electric motor. Not only is it a fake grill, David, but it's a fake self-repairing grill. What does that mean? Well, I did ask that. Apparently, it will repair itself uh, from small injuries, little nicks and grazes. Apparently, it will somehow rather come back to 100%. Don't ask me how, and I didn't try it. And you felt like a king or a queen inside it? Oh, David, it it was completely neutral. So if you're expecting any kind of road feel, Forget it. There's no steering feel, no road feel, and unbelievably quiet. It felt more like sitting in a lounge than it did getting any sense of the old sense of driving the vehicle. The designers and the and the makers of the car intended it to be a personal lounge room, so a, more like a room on wheels than a car. And I think in that, it's absolutely 100% achieved it. And... It's got probably the best audio system I've ever heard in a car. All you're missing, of course, Alan, is a log fire. Oh, David, I think you could probably put that up on the screen, couldn't you? (laughs) Alan, lovely to talk to you. Thanks, mate. As always, David, thanks. And that's Alan Service from gaycarboys.com talking about the BMW. X marks the spot. It's the iX xDrive 40. I think I've given it enough Xs, haven't I, that uh, is part of BMW's new push towards electric vehicles. You're listening to Overdrive. Mitsubishi Outlander sits in the very competitive family SUV segment. 
It's been around for many years, but the latest version is without a doubt the best yet. It comes in either two-wheel drive or all-wheel drive versions, five-seat or five plus two, five different model versions and two engines, a normal petrol and a Feb petrol hybrid. In short, it has choices for almost everyone. We drove the Outlander Exceeded Tourer, which is the top specification model. It is priced at around $52,490 plus usual costs, with a stylish exterior that is appealing to many buyers. Inside, it's a little smaller than others like the Sorento or Santa Fe, but as a five-seat model, it works a treat. The large central screen is tilted towards the driver. There are luxury touches everywhere, and the leather heated and cooled front seats are particularly comfortable. The driver even has a massage function. The rear seats have plenty of legroom and the boot is quite large. The petrol 2.5 litre engine gives zippy performance and good economy and matches well to the 8-speed automatic transmission and all-wheel drive capability. In a crowded market, the Outlander provides buyers a valued base alternative for style. This is Motoring Minute, I'm Brianna Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Evan Jones, Rob Fraser, Alan Zervis, Brianna Fraser and Paul Just for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.